0: We spent the last week reading the first three chapters of Genesis, and now here we are, Cain and Abel. Um, I have to admit the first three chapters of Genesis are so overladen with other theological principles and ideas and uh, things like that that sometimes it's hard to see them. Um, you know, creation from nothing and the fall and um, all of that gets gets mixed into that. And as far as I know, nothing gets mixed into the Cain and Abel story. And I think that's an advantage for us today because we can actually read it clearly. Um, it's a story about sin. I mean, the fall, <coughs> chapter 3, is a story about sin. But this is a story about sin that we can read without all of the extras that come along with it. Um, Cain and Abel, they they, they offer sacrifice to God, and for some reason, we don't know exactly why, God likes Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's. The point there is perhaps not the sacrifice, but Cain's reaction to it. Cain greatly resented this and was crestfallen. But that is not the sin that we think about in this chapter of Genesis. Cain resents the fact that God liked Abel's sacrifice better. But God talks to him. Why are you so resentful and crestfallen? If you do well, you can hold up your head. But if not, sin is a demon lurking at the door. His urge is toward you, yet you can be his master. Sin is just out there, waiting for Cain. But Cain can be his master. Cain can overcome it. He hasn't done anything yet. We're on the verge. Of course, Cain doesn't overcome it and kills his brother Abel. But the dialogue doesn't stop there. Of course, God banishes Cain. But Cain talks back to God and says, well, this is too much. And God continues to protect him. Well, think about that. I mean, um, Cain killed Abel. God naturally could have just made the punishment fit the crime and gotten rid of Cain. But he gave him an opportunity going forward. And he continued the dialogue. He protects him. Strangely enough, Cain gets protection from God. They talk back and forth. Um, And God continues to counsel Cain, which makes me think of uh, which which makes me think of this dialogue. Makes me uh, reminds me of the gospel when Jesus um, is asked for a sign, he sighs from the depth of his spirit. It's a continuation of the dialogue that he's been having since Adam and Eve and since Cain. We were talking about the the students in Christology, um, we're talking about when Jesus does anything, he does it better than any other human being. When Jesus sighs from the depth of his soul, that's a very, very deep soul. This, I, I have to imagine that Jesus is sighing because this dialogue between human beings and God has been going on since the beginning, and it never seems to go anywhere. But sin doesn't have the last word. God has the last word. In the at the very end of the reading, um, Seth is born. It's a new beginning. This dialogue in which God has the last word. It's my own dialogue with sin. I suppose it's your dialogue with sin as well. It's the world's dialogue with sin. But sin never has the last word. God does. In my own relationship with sin, sin is lurking there, just waiting to catch me. And I can overcome it. And oftentimes, like Cain, I don't. But this is a reminder that sin doesn't have the last word. God does. In my relationship with you and your relationship with me as brothers, sin is always lurking there. There's resentment. I mean, we're in the middle of the cookie novena. We have nine days of cookies and... Some cookies are accepted better than others. One has the opportunity to let resentment bubble over into sin. But we have the power to overcome that. It's a trivial example, but there are all kinds of examples of that in our life. Sin doesn't have the last word, and we do have the power to overcome it. It's lurking there, waiting for us. But it doesn't have to bubble over, because it's not sin that has the last word. It's God that has the last word on sin.